Well, good morning again. Glad you're here this morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Gabe and Rod are up front. They have Bibles in their hands. I'd love to bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. Last chapter of the book of Jonah, last study in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. That's all there. The title of my study this morning is The Pouting Prophet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning, Lord, to be in your word, Lord, to be in this place. Lord, will we know that it's your desire to speak to our hearts, Lord, and so we're anxious to hear, Lord, what you have to say to us this morning. We thank you for this facility that you've blessed us with. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have to be able to worship you in this way, Lord, and uh, without fear of outside attack, Lord, just uh, the blessing that is to be here this morning. We, Lord, Lord, also pray if there's anyone that has joined us this morning that doesn't have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. They don't have their sin forgiven. They're not born again. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today, Lord, that they would see their need for you and they would turn to you today. We thank you also, Lord, for this opportunity to share in communion this morning. We ask your blessing upon that as well. And so we just give this service to you, Lord, ask you to continue to anoint it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I heard a story about an older couple that had been married for 60 years. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment this day and age. This coming Friday, my wife and I will be married 38 years. And so that's that's kind of exciting, but uh, not bad. But I mean, uh, 60 years they had been married. So the newspaper dispatched a reporter to interview them and to try to figure out the secret to the, to the longevity of their marriage. So the reporter sat down with the man and said, Sir, tell us how it is that you have been married for 60 years. Well, he says, Well, it all goes back to my honeymoon. We went to the Grand Canyon and we were riding donkeys, my wife and I. And you know there are those narrow little paths with sharp drop-offs and so you have to be very careful. And my wife was ahead of me on her donkey, and, and uh, we hadn't even known each other that long when we got married, and her donkey stumbles a little bit, and I noticed her leaning forward and saying into the donkey's ear, that's once. And I thought, wow, she's got quite a temper. I mean, I've never seen that before. So we got a little bit further on, and her donkey stumbles again, and she leans forward and says to the donkey, that's twice. Wow. Then a little time went by and the donkey stumbled for a third time. She pulls out a pistol from her purse, holds it up to the donkey's head and shoots it. Bam! Donkey drops dead right there. The husband is is outraged. That's horrible. You're so mean and angry. Why would you do that to the donkey? She turned to the husband and said, that's once. Okay, how many of you heard that joke before? Yeah, see, you know, it's hard coming up with new ones, you know. But I have a question for you. What makes you angry? I mean, really, what really ticks you off royally? Uh, you know, I, I can tell you honestly when I'm hungry. I, I get a little bit irritable. My wife can attest to that, you know. You know and I mean, guys, do you get hungry? You know, when you're, yeah, you get a little angry a little, when you're hungry a little bit, you know. We call it hangry in our house. You know, but what ticks you off? Everybody has those things that, that, things that, that may irritate them. A lot of things that that bother me today, now I have to deal with driving, especially after getting back with taking my son 14 hours driving to Virginia to college. Why is it that when a person is stopped at the, the, the light and the light turns green, why do they sit there before they go? Why don't they just go? Now, why, why, when they go to merge onto the highway, why do you stop? 
Okay, that's another question I have. I mean, you're supposed to get up to the speed in traffic and get onto the freeway. And why on earth are you driving 50 miles per hour in the fast lane with the semi-truck right next to you and I can't get around you? Get over, move over, get out of the way. Do I sound a little angry? I, I mean, <laughs> what angers you? I'll tell you what angered Jonah. God's mercy. God's mercy angered Jonah. Can you imagine that? God is merciful to 600,000 people, and that really ticked Jonah off. See, when we last left Jonah, he had preached in Nineveh, and, he was preached, and after his preaching, a great revival took place, greater than any revival in the history of the world. It pleased God, but not Jonah. Why? Well, because of the city of Nineveh. It was wicked. The Bible says in Jonah 1-2 that the wickedness of Nineveh came before God. Another way to translate that is that it reached up to the, to the highest pitch, the highest degree. It's like an overflowing trash can. We looked at that. You know, it, it stinks to high heaven, so to speak. And for good reason. Nineveh was renowned for their, for their wickedness and specifically for their violent crime. When the Ninevites would conquer a nation, they would torture and murder the people in cold blood, and they took great pleasure in doing so. In fact, archaeologists have found, discovered monuments built by the Ninevites with inscriptions on them boasting of the cruelty. One such inscription read, I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. I flayed all of the chief men who revolted and covered the pillar with their skins. Another inscription read, I cut off their fingers and their hands and then I cut off their noses and their ears and put out their eyes. I mean, it sounds like, like the Holocaust. God says, this stinks. God says, judgment is coming. Yet the Lord decides to give them one more chance. So he summons his prophet, the man who's supposed to speak for God, the prophet Jonah. Jonah says, uh, God, Jonah, God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them. Now understand this contextually. That would be like God coming to a patriotic Israeli and telling him, hey, I want you to go to Iran and I want, I want you to speak, preach to them. I want you to spare them. I'm sure that Israeli would have kind of a problem with that. They would say, are you serious? I mean, they threaten us every day to wipe us off the face of the earth. Lord, why don't you just destroy them? Then we wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. No, God says, I want you to go preach to them. And that's what it was like when God came to Jonah and said, go preach to Nineveh. Jonah says, Lord, they drink haterade, okay, in Nineveh. All right, I don't want to go. We know the rest of the story. Jonah refuses to go, so much so that he gets on board a ship going in the opposite direction. God sends a powerful storm to get Jonah's attention. All the sailors began to despair of life. They finally determined that the culprit, the one responsible for the storm, was Jonah, who admits that you know it's his fault. I'm an Israelite. I'm a prophet from God. I'm running from God. And indeed, God sent the storm. So all the guys who weren't believers said, why would you run from a God this powerful? It's amazing. What's wrong with you? Jonah says, I'll tell you what. You throw me over the board and the storm will stop. Really? Okay, God bless. Boom. And they threw him overboard. That was it. But God was not done with Jonah. The Bible said the Lord prepared this great fish to swallow Jonah. Not necessarily a well as we've looked at, but we have no problem believing it could have been a well. Three days later, Jonah comes to his senses and repents, gets regurgitated and returns to Nineveh with a message. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We read last week, or last time rather, that Nineveh cried out mightily to God. They turned from their wicked ways. They repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes from the common people all the way up to the king. All the, I mean, even they put a sackcloth on, on the animals. And God heard their prayer and spared them and sent a nationwide revival. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. 
Now, it's amazing to me that they would turn off based off of the sermon that Jonah preached. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. No promise of forgiveness, no promise of hope, just a warning that judgment was coming. Listen, if God could bring a mighty revival in Nineveh with no better representative than Jonah and no more gospel than what he preached, God certainly can bring revival to America. So Nineveh repents, God relents from judgment, and one of the largest revivals ever, ever breaks out in Nineveh. Now, think about this. True repentance, people turning from their sin, turning to God. Jonah must have been ecstatic. I mean, so excited. I mean, God's given me a second chance, and now Nineveh is a massive revival breaks out. And you get to chapter 4, and you think you're going to read, and Jonah greatly rejoiced in the things that the Lord has done. Think again. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. <laughs> what? It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Actually, that English words that are used here don't even come close to conveying what actually it says in Hebrew. These are the strongest words that could have been used. The literal Hebrew here would go something like, but it was evil to Jonah, a great wickedness, and he was burning. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning concerning Jonah. Number one... He was reviled by revival. Number two, we're going to see pouting over a plant. Number three, no pity for a city. Number one, he's reviled by revival. Jonah was fuming. Why was Jonah fuming? Because in Jonah's eyes, these people repenting and God showing mercy was such a great injustice. In Jonah's mind, God actually had done evil. He had violated his own holiness and it was burning Jonah up inside. And I love this because what it shows us is that God's work in the Ninevites was done. But God's work in Jonah still wasn't done. It's still going on. Yeah, Jonah had repented, you know, from his rebellion there in the belly of the great fish, but there was still that, that root of bitterness that caused the rebellion in the first place, and it was still there, stronger than ever. But God was not going to let him get away with it. What, I mean, what a lesson this is for all of us. See, I believe that, like Jonah, we are often willing to let God deal with our, our outer problems the ones on the surface, but we are reluctant to let God get at that source to get to the root of the problem. You know, we won't let Him get deep inside of us. And because we don't, those problems just keep coming up over and over again. Maybe it's a financial problem. You know, and God is wanting you to get your finances in order, but you keep borrowing more money and borrowing more money. Maybe it's a relationship problem. And instead of dealing with that person, you're avoiding them. You see them in the grocery store and you go down the other aisle, you know, hoping they don't see you. Maybe you're dealing with the problem on the outside, but God wants to get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is, is in Jonah's life is this rebellion against God's gracious heart. Even though he had been shown this great mercy by being saved from the belly of this great fish himself, he was still rebelling because God is not doing what he thinks God ought to do. So what does he do? Well, we read in verse 2 that he prayed unto the Lord. Now, the last time we, we met Jonah prayed, he was in the belly of the great fish. Now he's on the outside in, in Nineveh. Now he's throwing a temper tantrum. Uh, he's not happy. Look at verse 2 again. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, the amazing thing about this prayer, Jonah acknowledges the great things about God, but he's still angry at God. 
See, the problem for Jonah was that the, these attributes of God weren't working in his favor. They weren't accomplishing what Jonah wanted. In fact, they worked against, you know, what Jonah thought God should do. I mean, God's grace and, and mercy and forgiveness and loving kindness was fine when it applied to Israel. It was great when it saved Jonah out of the belly of the fish. But it was not so fine when it was applied to these pagan Gentiles and it was downright evil when it was applied to Israel's enemies. Again, like most of the Jews, they hated the Ninevites. But see, this brings us back to chapter 3. And the person that needs to understand that, that God is a God of second chances and third chances. But so often we say, yes, I want God to give me a second chance. That's what I want for me. I want God to judge, though, you, you know, but show me mercy. That's what Jonah wanted. God wanted to, or Jonah rather wanted to, uh, God to work according to Jonah's way, not God's way. Jonah wanted God to stay in this, this box that Jonah had designed just for him. But God won't do that. Because God is God and He can do whatever He wants to at any time He wants to do it. You know, there's many themes in the book of Jonah. There's the, the pursuing heart of God we see. There's the, the God of second chances. But another theme in the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God. And we see this clearly in this chapter. Now, what is the sovereignty of God? Well, to put it simply, it means that God does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants to do it, and whatever He does is always perfect. And Jonah struggled with that. I mean, do you ever get upset over the fact that God doesn't do what you think that God should do in your life? Now, maybe you want to be married and God has said no. Maybe you don't want to be married and God said, too bad. Maybe you've always wanted children and God has said no. Maybe you've been praying the day your children go out of the house and God says, not yet. One thing I've learned is that God never promises to give us everything we want, but He does promise to always give us exactly what we need. But you see, that's where the sovereignty of God comes in. The Lord is about to give Jonah a big lesson on the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? That's a great question. And we'll look at that in a moment. But what's interesting is that Jonah doesn't even answer the Lord. He just leaves. Look at verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. I mean, to me, that's a temper tantrum. He's probably got his arm going, you know, and, and he's sitting over there and, you know, he's angry. You know, it's a common reaction of someone who doesn't get their way. You know, they run, you know, they, they, and sadly, some run from God. But Jonah, of all people, should have realized you can't run from God. Look at verse 5 again. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Now think about this. Why is Jonah going out of the city and camping out, making himself a shelter and sitting, it, uh, sitting under it in the shade? Well, we get a clue in verse 5 where it says, till he might see what would become of the city. Remember, his message was, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. So if all their repentance took place in the first, say, 10 or 15 days, there's still time for the Ninevites to backslide, to turn, you know, to blow it. You know, there's still time, maybe, that God is going to judge them, that they're going to go back to their evil ways. And I think Jonah was hoping for that. Because he knew that if they did, God would wipe them out. He was hoping that, that God would do what he wanted God to do in the first place and then have a ringside seat to watch the whole city burn. But I have to wonder what the people of Nineveh might have been thinking about Jonah during all of this. Mom, why does this prophet look so, so mad at us? Why does he seem so mean all the time? Why so angry all the time? Listen, I wonder if many unbelievers feel the same way about the church. 
Why do they seem so mad at us? Why do they look so mean? Why do they keep, why do they keep saying things like, man, it's all going to burn and you're going to burn. And a lot of Christians come across like, like, like we can't wait to see people get what's coming to them. Judgment. But what should be our attitude? What should be our hearts? It should be what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus hated sin but loved the sinner. And we should hate sin and we should hate injustice, but we need to love the sinner. We need to see people the way Jesus saw people, as sheep without a shepherd. Yes, people need to know that they've broken God's laws. They need to repent and come to Christ. But they also need to know how and why. And it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Letting people know the good news in a loving way. They need to see that the greatest need and their biggest need is that of forgiveness. It's been said that forgiveness is the deepest need of man and the highest achievement of God. But we can share that with folks in a loving and a very merciful way. Listen, if you really want to irritate Satan, because he's not going to leave you alone anyway, so, so if you really want to irritate the devil, imitate God. Imitate God by being merciful and loving and forgiving and slow to anger and slow to wrath. Be slow to criticize, slow to find fault. Now this is not Jonah. He's sitting there, he's waiting, he's hoping that things will fall apart, that Nineveh was indeed get wiped out and judged. He's angry, he's depressed, and he's totally focusing on the wrong things. Listen, that's a guarantee for depression. If you want to be depressed, do what Jonah did. Isolate yourself from people, sit back from a distance, and watch and analyze and judge all that people do. I promise you, you'll be miserable. See, the place where Jonah should have been is in the city encouraging these new converts. Converts. He should have been discipling them. He should have been pointing them and teaching to the Lord and pointing them and teaching them uh, of the Lord. But instead, where was he? He's a spectator on the hillside. And so in God's love for Jonah, he sees that Jonah needs an attitude adjustment. Once again, I think one of the themes of, of, of the book of Jonah is that God was more interested in what he was trying to do in Jonah's life than what he wanted to do through Jonah's life. And that's the same truth for us. It's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to do work in our hearts and lives before He can work through our lives. So with that in mind, look at God's response in verse 6. This brings us to point number 2, pouting over a plant. Verse 6 says, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. I love this. Uh, uh, here's what God does. God looks at Jonah. He's pouting. He's angry because 600,000 people that Jonah preached to, was hoping that they would go to hell, aren't. And here God says, I think I'll bless Jonah by bringing him some shade from this hot, mild, eastern, mid-eastern sun. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's God's grace. Isn't that just like the Lord? The blessings that we get is not because we deserve them, but because God is merciful. It's because God is gracious. Maybe you've discovered this like me, that many times when I haven't been praying with great consistency, or maybe I haven't been studying the word with fervency, that God will throw a blessing my way anyway. I go, whoa. See, that's grace. Since before the foundation of the world, through the ages to come and on into eternity, God dealing with us are always through His grace. We, we, when we least deserve it, He blesses us. And here's what's interesting. It's right here in the book of Jonah, for the first and only time that we see Jonah is happy. He's happy. I mean, he's been miserable the whole chapters we've looked at. Now he's happy. It says that Jonah was very grateful for the plant. The word grateful means that he rejoiced with great joy. Why? Because his personal comfort was being met. See, Jonah's problem is that he's so self-absorbed he can't think about uh, anything but himself. 
So Jonah has his shade. He's happy. But now God is going to shake his world again. Here comes this biggest object lesson to Jonah on the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 7. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement, vehement, a very big, strong east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Stop there for a moment. I think verses 6 and 7 really are our life story. I think it's a pattern in all of our lives. One day we have blessings and comfort. The next day, you know, that may be taken away. God may take them away. Why? Because God is more concerned for our character rather than our comfort. Let me say that again. God is more concerned with our character than our comforts. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't take care of us or that He doesn't provide for us. But there are times where God knows what's best for us and He allows things to heat up in our lives for a season. And things may heat up in our lives, but know this, God has His hand on the thermostat. You may have heard that before. Man, it's getting hot and we have no problems here, but God knows how much you can take. God knows what it takes in order to change our hearts. He knows how hot it needs to get in order for us to trust in Him and, and, and His sovereignty. God here used a plant and a worm to work in Jonah's life, but God certainly can use other things in our lives. Maybe not a plant or a worm. Maybe it's a, a broken down car. You're driving along and the car breaks down. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a financial squeeze. Maybe it's not getting the promotion that you thought you, you deserved. How do you respond? Like Jonah? Look at the end of verse 8. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Folks, this is over a plant that died. Can you believe that? He's pouting over a plant. It's like you want to shout to Jonah, Do you hear what you're saying? This plant that you had nothing to do with with it growing has now died, so now you're miserable and you want to die. Oh, that's smart. Or maybe if you weren't out in the middle of the desert waiting and hoping for the Ninevites to die, you wouldn't be in this place in the first place. How about getting up, walking away, from going to a place where there's shade. How about getting up and going back to Nineveh and start discipling these, these new believers? He won't do it. Why? Because he's throwing his own little pity party. Again, Jonah would have been happy about Nineveh's destruction, but he wanted to die because of a silly plant's destruction. But again, I see the long-suffering of, of God, uh, you know, and, and, and he gently exposes how mixed up Jonah's values truly were. This brings us to our third point. He had no pity for the city. Look at verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. <laughs> you read that and you go, Oh my goodness. He's talking to God like that? I mean, you know, if I were God, Jonah would be toast. Or continue to be toast because he's, he's already hot there already. I mean, he start to sizzle, you know. But listen, I think I know I've been there. I think we've all been there. Things don't go our way. The way we think God should move. The way we think God should work. And, and, and God says to us, don't you know that I'm working in you uh, all things together for good for you because you love me and I've called you according to my purpose? And we say, well, yeah, no, you know, I, I still want my way. I want, I, I want it to work this way. It's not fair. It's not fair. Uh, I have a right to be angry. And God says to us, you have a right to be angry? Not about a plant, maybe perhaps it's your wife. Is it right for you to be angry at your wife or at your husband or with your kids? Is it right for you to be angry with that person in the body of Christ, perhaps your boss? 
more specifically, is it right for you to be angry at God because things are not going all at all the way you wanted the Lord to work? Is it right for you to be angry at God because God isn't doing what you think He should be doing? See, the truth of the matter is this. We can be just like Jonah when things don't go our way. We can get disappointed and we get angry and blame our wives and our husbands and our kids and our God. And, and, and say, God, it's all your fault. And we can be like Jonah and say, it's right for me to be angry even to death. But even though we may have that heart, God in His grace wants to get through to our hearts through His Word. And I see this in the way that God responds to Jonah. He doesn't blast him. He reasons with him. Look at verse 10. But the Lord said, You had, have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? 120,000 that cannot discern between the right and their left hand refer to children. And how old, wouldn't the kids learn the right from the left? You know, somewhere after the age of five. And I love this. God says to Jonah, seriously, Jonah, you're grieving over a plant. It's a plant. Wake up. And when it comes to Nineveh, I, I mean, should I not have pity on more than 120,000 children? All under the age of five that are in that city. Uh, uh, come on, I know that you're angry with the adults and their evil ways and the horrible cruelty, but what about the kids? He says, what about the livestock? God cares about the animals as well. But see, what God is, is doing is asking Jonah, where is your compassion? Jonah, where's, where's your mercy? He's getting to the heart of Jonah's problem in the first place, and that was Jonah's heart. Two things we can learn from this. Number one, we learn a lesson of God's priorities. The plant was temporary, but people are eternal. The plant was a little value, but people are highly valued. Jonah carried, or cared rather for the destiny of one plant. God cares for the spiritual destiny of billions of people. Jonah had no part in making that plant grow. God had every part in creating the Ninevites. And in the same way, God's concern for people goes way beyond Israel. Listen, God's concern for people goes way beyond America as well. I think we can look at, at this world and we see the way things are going. We say, Lord, come quickly. Lord, judge the wickedness. Judge Iran. Lord, bring judgment against ISIS. Lord, Lord, they're, they're killing innocent lives. But understand, God is concerned with all people. He's not willing that any, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the lesson of Jonah reminds us that God is a creator of all people. Jonah thought that the things that were important to him should be important to God, so he fixed his eyes on them and wouldn't look anyplace else. But that leads to nothing but frustration. What God wanted is for Jonah and for us to see things from a heavenly perspective. In fact, that, 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 that God is a lover of all people and races, and he wants to, to give us eyes, his eyes, to see his heart for the world to be those that earnestly desire all people to be saved from judgment and hell, no matter where they come from. That's a lesson in God's priorities. Yes, judgment will come against all unrighteousness. There will come a day where God will judge. And next week, we're going to look at the sequel to the book of Jonah. It's the book of Nahum. And we'll see what happens 150 years from then. But, but, but all this is showing us the long-suffering of God. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I've always loved what Isaiah 55, 6-11 says. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous, unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. See, it just shows God, how God just enjoys showing grace to the repentant sinner. But I think sometimes we just don't get that. And that's the second lesson we learn here. Number two, a lesson on God's sovereignty. You know, I'm not surprised at the judgment of God. I'm surprised at the long-suffering of God. I mean, we think, God, judge now. Lord, come now. And I got saved back in 1979, two weeks before my 21st birthday. And I looked at the way things were in the world, and I looked at Scripture, and I thought, man, Lord, you're coming back. I know you're coming back. I, I mean, I truly believe the Lord was going to return and judge the world. And I pray, Lord, come quickly. Lord, you need to return now. Let me ask you something. How many of you wouldn't be here right now if 37 years ago the Lord answered my prayer? <laughs> I mean, really, think about that. See, what right do we have to question God? That's why God tells us in His Word in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, who am I to question what God does? Who he chose, chooses to show mercy to. His ways are higher. His, his thoughts are higher. Uh, so beyond us. And I think we all have life stories that, that don't make sense to us. That we go, God, why did this happen? I think of when my father died when I was only three years old, leaving my mom to raise six kids by herself. I think, why did my, my best friend at 15 years old get in a car accident and become paralyzed from the waist down? And we question God. God, I'm angry. And God says to us, do you have the right to be angry? Because I took your father when you were three years old. You learned that I am your father and I'm taking care of you. You learned Psalm 68, 5 that says, A father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows is God in his holy habitation. What right do you have to be angry that your best friend became paralyzed when she was 15 years old? Through her paralysis, <laughs> Tom, you received myself as, as, your, as, your, as your savior. That's God said to me. You're saved as a result of her paralysis. And through her paralysis, she's touched many lives that you couldn't even begin to understand when you were 16 years old. You see, the problem is we want everything to make sense to us right then and there. We think God should act this way and He always should respond in that way. But then we get really disappointed when God throws a change up. We say, wait, that wasn't meant to happen. Well, according to God, it was. Listen to Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. We say it wasn't supposed to work this way. God says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. No, there's always a tension in Scripture when it comes to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Election versus free will versus God's foreknowledge. And, and for hundreds and hundreds of years, people have wrestled with the things. But, but the reality of it is we need to be, believe both and not try to find the answer. Because every answer only puts God in a box and sets parameters and ignores the verses where God is clearly pulling from the outside of those parameters. What's the solution? What's the conclusion? Here it is. God is God, and I'm not. His ways are higher than, than my ways, His thoughts than my thoughts, and God's Word is going to accomplish what it wants to accomplish. 
But it requires that we surrender our desires to God. We surrender our plans and we place them at His feet. I think of Job. What God said to Job when Job was questioning God's dealing in his life and questioning the way God was doing things. There in Job 38, 1 through 6, we see that the Lord answers Job by asking some very important questions. Job 38, 1 through 6 says this, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? But God would go on to ask him, Where were you when I put the stars in place, when I gave the oceans their boundaries, when I made the heavens, the atmosphere, and space, and set their boundaries? Have you commanded the sun to come up or to set? Read Job 38. I mean, it's fascinating because the questions reveal God's sovereignty. Now, does that mean that God is saying, Don't ever question me? No. Not necessarily, but what it's saying is just remember who it is that we are talking to. His ways are beyond our ways. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. Listen, we serve a, a big God, a great God, a God who we belong to and always, always makes Himself available to us. Every task, every challenge, everything He has to do, He's there for us. He's on our side. To borrow a phrase from Pastor Chuck, glorious. It's It's glorious. Now, as we close the book of Jonah, the question has been asked over and over again, did Jonah get it? I mean, did he get it? Did he learn what God was trying to teach him? Well, we're not really sure, because it ends so abruptly. But I think in the ending, it's a clue for us, because think about this. Who wrote the book of Jonah? Jonah. And, and as we've said all along, the focus of the book of Jonah is not Jonah. It's God. It's God's pursuing love. It's God giving second chances. It's God showing mercy. It's God being sovereign. The main character is God. Jonah is just a supporting actor. And Jonah, the writer, he appropriately gives God the final word. So that is why I think that's an indication for us that Jonah got it. Now, I did read that there's a tradition that says that after God said these final words in verse 11 of chapter 4, that Jonah fell on his face and said these words that are found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 9. Govern your world according to the measure of mercy, as it is said, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. We can only hope that. Uh, you know, And we can only hope that we would have the same humble response. God, you're on the throne. I'm not. You know what's best. I read uh, the painter Michelangelo did a painting that hangs in the Sistine Chapel there in Rome called The Prophets and the Apostles. And that there's this one face that stands out having a far more radiant uh, countenance than any other, and that's a prophet Jonah. So it seems like Michelangelo also believed that Jonah got the message of God's wonderful grace and mercy that goes out to all. Listen, we can't be totally positive about Jonah, but we can be totally positive about ourselves. Maybe you've said, you know, what about this? What about that, God? How come you just won't do this, do that? And, and we can make excuses for not trusting God for not obeying Him, and, and we throw these little temper tantrums. Stop. Just stop. Today, just trust Him. Believe in Him and on Him. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your path. We're going to close now and enter into a time of communion. I think about Jonah throwing a, a, his own little pity party and I look to Jesus. I mean, if anybody could had the right to throw a pity party, would it not have been Jesus? 
knowing that he was going to the cross, knowing that he was going to die for our sins, knowing what he was going to go through, Jesus could have said, oh, you know, this is so awful, you guys don't know how bad. He could have thrown himself a pity party. He didn't complain. He didn't whine about it. He didn't whine about the cross. He, did, you know, he willingly wanted the cross. He gave his earthly life so we can have eternal life, a heavenly life, not only here on earth, but in heaven. That's what we remember at communion. That's what this is all about. It's time to examine our hearts that we've been throwing a pity party. You know when we do. You know what we're saying is, God, I don't trust you. That's all it is. So we need to confess that this morning, surrender to him afresh today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open our hearts to you this morning, Lord. And, and Lord, to look at the subject of your sovereignty Lord, and the look of the subject of when we, things we don't understand that are happening around us, Lord, we want to trust in you, Lord, that you have a plan and you have a purpose. And Lord, uh, we may not really understand this side of heaven. There may be things in our lives, Lord, that we won't understand until we stand before you, Lord, and at that moment all things will become clear. But Lord, right now we just want to pray, Lord, uh, for ourselves as we enter into this place of communion, Lord, if there's any anger in our hearts towards one another, Lord, towards you. Lord, we want to confess that. We want to ask for your forgiveness. Lord, if we're not trusting you, if we're living in fear, Lord, that we want to confess that to you, Lord. Father, we want to thank you for how merciful you are, how great you are, how powerful you are. We thank you, Lord. We want to pray for, for those that don't know you, Lord. We want to pray for their salvation, even those Lord, in Iran, even those caught up in ISIS, even those in Syria and the, the atrocities that are going on, Lord, there's children there. Lord, and we see your heart for the children here in Jonah. Lord, we pray for the children. We pray for their lives. Lord, we pray that you would protect them. You would save them. And now, Lord, as we come to the cross, as we come to communion, Lord, we thank you for this time to remember what you did for us. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.